27 of the Guns and Yoga podcast. My name is Wendy Hummel. I realize I say this a lot, but I really enjoyed speaking with today's guest, the Tactical Chaplain. Since launching this podcast almost a year ago, I've had the opportunity to speak with a lot of really great people doing their part to promote prevention, healing, and resources and programming for first responders and their families. My guest today reached out to me and I'm so glad that he did. His perspective on integrating holistic preventative habits is right up my alley. Matt Demiancic is a medically retired police officer who now volunteers his time as a chaplain and peer support for police agencies in the Los Angeles, California area. He also is a volunteer for nonprofits that support police officers in crisis, as well as those that are injured and disabled. Matt believes that all first responders can have careers that provide deeper meaning, add rich and add richness to their spiritual lives if approached in the right manner. As you will hear, Matt was meditating and journaling as a young boy long before becoming a police officer. He tells us about his armor down routine that he created. It includes a holistic routine that integrates physical, mental, and spiritual components. And this was decades ago long before we started talking about this on a national front. Matt discusses his long road to recovery after several injuries and surgeries that led him to medically retire. With the help of a medical professional that understood the benefits of incorporating multiple non-traditional forms of healing, which just basically meant not popping pain pills, he decided to move to California and really pursue his healing journey, although it was financially costly. Matt knew what his body needed and what his mind needed. He listened to the innate wisdom of his body, and he's in a much better place for it today. To say that Matt is a well-rounded guy doesn't really quite capture it. He's highly educated. He has an impressive resume of trainings that he's attended and taught and the various assignments that he's held throughout his career. He has also worked as a collegiate strength coach and worked as a mental skills and strength trainer with the NFL combine athletes and was himself a linebacker and competitive power lifter for the Air Force Academy and Colgate University. He has several advanced degrees in forensic science, sports psychology, and pastoral theology. Matt's favorite place to be though is with first responders, whether that means he's riding alongside them in a patrol car, out at the range or meeting a retiree for coffee, he is just passionate about providing support. Matt's viewpoint is one of prevention and proactivity, which is where he and I really mesh. He lives and promotes the importance of holistic wellness, integrating mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual self-care before crisis happens. Matt tells us his police career, career is like the NFL, not for long. And so when I first heard him say this, it made me giggle. But when I listened back to uh, prepare for this intro, it really made me pause and reflect because this job isn't forever. And it's even more important to take our health seriously because you just never know when it's going to end, whether that be by your choice or something completely out of your control. Another thing that Matt shares with us during our conversation is a couple of other nuggets of wisdom. If your well goes dry, you can't give anyone else a drink of water. Pain that is not transformed is transmitted. And if you don't heal what hurt you, you're going to bleed on those that didn't hurt you. I myself am not medically retired, but I have had my share of stress-induced health issues that manifested in mental, emotional, and physical ways. This is what led me personally to discover my own path to healing. Throughout my career as a law enforcement officer, I developed stress-based health issues that I now know stem from a dysregulated nervous system, chronic inflammation, routine exposure to secondary trauma, and habits that simply just didn't support my health. As I search for ways to heal my gut, lose weight, sleep better, and feel more energized, I tried different diets like paleo and Atkins, but Things never really worked long-term. There may have been a short-term fix, but I always found myself back in the same place. My idea or definition of health was as long as I burned off more calories than I took in, I was good. This meant grinding it out in the gym with my hardcore early morning workouts, even though I didn't get enough sleep. My mindset was that sacrificing sleep was the norm. 
I operated like this for years. Although I had been practicing yoga and meditation for a little bit, it wasn't until I found Ayurveda that things really began to shift. And you probably are asking yourselves, well, what is Ayurveda? It's an evidence-based framework, basically supported by modern science and behavioral health research for those that really just want to live their best life, improve your health, have increased energy and strengthen mindset and relationships. Bottom line is that it's something that's really been around for thousands of years. It's really not any new information, and it's just really all about adopting small lifestyle habits in accordance with circadian rhythm. By making these small lifestyle habit changes, I was able to get my physiology back into rhythm, and this changed my life and my health. If you're interested in learning more about my Radical Resilience program and the lifestyle habits that can support you regardless of what stage of your life or your career you're in, please email me or go to the wendyhummel.com website. There's several free resources on the site, a few yoga classes, some yoga workshops, and more classes are going to be added monthly. For those of you that are local, which means you're in Wichita, Kansas, I'm hosting an in-person mini retreat on February 12th, and there are two spots left. The focus is self-compassion, and we're going to practice yin yoga and slow flow yoga. We're going to do some journaling, meditation, share a light lunch, and so much more. I'm really looking forward to it. Now, on to the show. Welcome to the show, Matt. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So we were just chatting before I hit the record button and I was stumbling over how to pronounce your last name. So here we go. I want everybody to know that uh, about to talk to Matt Demiancek. No, Demiancek. Is that right? Demiancek. You got it. Okay. Yeah. Gosh, I don't know. I was having such a hard time with that, but we were chatting a little bit and um, Matt is the tactical chaplain, which I think is like the coolest name. And we were also talking about the fact that um, guns and yoga and tactical chaplain are kind of like two words you don't typically hear together. So that's another reason why I think, I think you're so cool without even knowing you yet. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so Matt, if you could just kind of start out, let everybody know, um, who you are. Um, you are a former police officer currently in the trenches. There's so much more to you, but, um, but I'm going to let you kind of introduce yourself, tell everybody what, um, what led you into your career in law enforcement and kind of where you're at today? Oh, so I'm a medically retired police officer. I worked mm -hmm. patrol, peer support, SWAT, and full-time police academy instructor for fitness and officer survival. I was also concurrently a college strength conditioning coach and doing sports ministry, uh, first at Yale, because I started as a cop in Connecticut, then at Georgetown. Uh, I was a cop in the D.C. area. Um, why did I get into law enforcement? Long story short, I always thought I wanted to be a Fed or uh, I was going to be in the military. And I did start out at the Air Force Academy for two years, but I was not going to be able to fly. Um, and through an internship during my first master's degree uh, in forensic science under Dr. Henry Lee, I lived on a mountain in West Virginia at a place called Storm Mountain Training Center with a former DC SWAT, Special Forces, and rumored to be Delta Force badass dude named Rod Ryan, who was a great mentor of mine. And for three months, I did, you know, combat shooting, sniper repelling with a lot of SWAT teams and special forces types uh, back when the Middle East was hot. And I also met federal agents during that summer. And I just didn't get a, didn't have the same vibe as the enlisted special forces guys or like the metropolitan SWAT dudes. I also had some federal agents in my grad school classes and that, you know, it was just a different personality than like the street cops. And also there were feds that told me, Hey man, I had way more fun when I was a cop. Like I became a fed for the benefits and it's good this and that, but it's more a white collar job a lot of the time. So I ended up thinking I wanted to be a fed and that's why I went to grad school and, uh, was like, dang, uh, it's not what I thought. And ended up thinking, hey, I, I want to go into full-time ministry, possibly at the time I was discerning being a priest. And also thought that I might want to be a psychologist. And I thought, what better way, one, to learn about psychology, theology, spirituality, and do ministry loving on people than be a cop, a city cop, because everybody's in crisis, the victims and the criminals. So I thought, and I even said that during my interviews, like, Wow. What a great 
what a great opportunity to do ministry and learn about humanity more than just textbooks. Because I do have friends that are therapists and psychologists and God bless them and I love them. But a lot of people just went from suburban childhood to prestigious undergrad to master's and or PhD, and then sitting in an office talking to people about the realities, the harshest realities of life, having only looked at them in a textbook. And I think that police officers, firefighters, and veterans could be some of the gnarliest uh, therapists or quote or chaplains in this case, because that's another reason why, another story why I didn't uh, end up a psychologist. But we have experience with people and the harshest realities of life um, on a regular basis. So that's why I became a cop, because I thought it was a great way to do ministry and also still be on a team, wear a uniform and get action because I was an adrenaline junkie and I did want to be on a SWAT team. And I used to think FBI SWAT when growing up, but that was just the movies and I knew nothing about it. And, you know, HRT, they're like super gnarly for sure. But a lot of the federal regional SWAT teams, even guys in those teams will admit they're not doing the work that the metropolitan county and city agencies are doing or were doing before proactive policing has been uh, curtailed drastically right now, but back well, in the day. Well, it's funny because, um, so I'm married to somebody who was a fed who he's a retired fed. I started out federal and went, I'm backwards from what most people do. I started federal. <laughs> we met, I left and then I became a street cop, which I had always wanted to do anyway. And I'm really, it's funny. What you say is exactly my experience. Um, when, when we decided to get together and I had to move from the East coast to, to Kansas to be with them, I left my federal job and the deal was, I was smart enough to say this, you keep your federal job, I'll go be a cop, but you've got to keep your job because I even knew back then that I didn't even really pay attention to this stuff. Like the benefits and the money were better <laughs> than so. And, uh, but anyhow, it's funny that you say that because yeah, I'm, we, we, we've had those conversations throughout our marriage about what he does and what I've gotten to do. So cool. I wasn't on the SWAT team and in, but my, my brother-in-law is actually a retired fed and, and I could, if he's hearing this, I could kind of make fun of him being on the SWAT team, but I won't do that. <laughs> but I, but I will say I have met so many feds that have done way more police work than yeah. I've ever done. And sure. there's guys on units and different teams and positions in federal agencies that are out on the streets doing stuff too. However, Absolutely. there are, I mean, there are a lot of fed jobs that are not like the movies. They're not the ninjas. They're not the gunslingers. Mm -hmm. They're no, doing good work, but it's right. not chasing people on the streets. Yeah, no, for the most part, I would agree with that. But, you know, going back to what you said, you talked about something that you said during your interview when you first became a police officer, mm -hmm. that was pretty insightful to have that, to, to, to say what you said during your interview about humanity and serving. And I'm assuming you were pretty young at the time. Yeah, maybe 24, whatever I mm -hmm. finished grad school. Uh, well, there's a, there's longer stories. Like I worked in corporate America for a little bit. Uh, they're funnier stories for some other time. I, my friends are like, dude, we know you want to be like Jesus, but you're pushing some of the stuff too far. Like when I decided I didn't want to be a fed, I got a job as a carpenter framing houses and didn't tell oh, people boy. my academic background. Cause uh -huh. I was like, I don't want to commit to a job unless I know I'm going to be there forever. And some of my friends from Colgate, which is where I finished undergrad were like, dude, this is taking it too far. You got a Colgate degree and a master's in forensics and you're framing houses. Like, so I ended up doing finance for six months before I became a cop. But uh, yeah, I, I was probably 24. I said that during interviews and yeah, I can't, I remember the responses were kind of like, what? I also got questioned about the Colgate and master's degree in the panel interviews saying you're too smart to be a cop. And I'm like, you want dumb people carrying guns and driving fast? Like, so I got even mocked about that in my department sometimes, like you're too mm -hmm. educated. Although out here and even in the DC area, I've met plenty of cops that have been went to Berkeley and Notre Dame and UCLA and or have masters or, you know, even law degrees. So, um, yeah, I don't think you can be too smart to be a cop. That's kind of silly. Yeah. yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think it's changed. I agree with you. I think maybe back earlier, 
Um, it wasn't as common to have mm-hmm. higher education, but I think it's becoming more, more of a, a common thing for people to have, well, maybe one master's, but in your case, what, two or three? What did you say? How many do you three, have? But two, <laughs> three of them, but two of them are after I got medically retired. Gotcha. Okay. And I was supposed to be a, ma- a second master's, then a PhD, but then I ended three and a half years of workers' compensation cutting off my benefits and pay and trying to get me to go back on opiates and drugs mm-hmm. rather than I do functional and integrative medicine, mm-hmm. which costs more money to, you know, I get vitamins and supplements, vitamin IVs instead of opiates. I go to physical therapy pre-COVID. Every week I went and did neuro and biofeedback meditation in a psychiatry office and psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I do things that cost them more money, but make me healthy long-term versus opiates, benzos, muscle relaxers, sleep meds, psych meds. Um, so I didn't get a PhD because I had three and a half years. This was four years into being retired. I had three and a half years of no money and no medical care and back and forth, West Coast to East Coast and court battles over my benefits and trying to justify more holistic medical care over give me tons of drugs. Wow. So you, they, so let me make sure I understand this. So because of the type of treatment you opted to get that you just went and and explained to us, they wouldn't pay for that until, and that's what you went to court to fight. They did for four years. Okay. And so I went from obese, these are longer stories, but I had surgeries that went wrong. And if anybody has dealt with workers comp, depending on your, where you are, you know, it's like ignore, delay, deny, you were mm-hmm. needing things. And so like I had a bad surgery and they're like, oh, there's infections and they're still bleeding. And I get put on tons of antibiotics and painkillers. And it takes eight months maybe to get the next surgery that I should have had like immediately. And so when you're over-medicated on antibiotics and opiates and all this other stuff, well, it starts killing your digestive system, your immune system, your endocrine system. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up like 270 pounds, 30% body fat. I was wearing diapers. I had no control of my bodily functions um, when I got retired. And then one of my doctors in DC, an amazing psychiatrist who years ago and on the East Coast had yoga and meditation and physical therapy and a nutritionist in her psychiatry office. And we could go down the rabbit hole. All of those things contribute to your mental health, your gut health and meditation and yoga and taking care of your body. And she told me to move to LA for functional and integrative medicine. So I moved out here. And at the time I had different work comp caseworkers, maybe even it was a different company at the time Mm -hmm. that approved all this stuff. And so for four years, they were paying for a chiropractor, a physical therapist, a psychiatrist that did talk therapy and the neurofeedback with biofeedback. So measuring my brain waves and my heart rate variability while I meditated, like after we had talked about things that I was upset about, mm-hmm. you know, dealing with my medical retirement, my disabilities, and then learn how to self-regulate, which yoga and meditation can help with as well. Um, and then also a primary care who gave me nutrition, vitamin IVs and supplementation. Um, so they paid for it for four years. I got back in shape, went to grad school for sports psych, was coaching NFL combine and doing sports psych for NFL combine prep. And then they basically literally told me you cost too much money. And the guy told me he was my life coach, literally said he was going to be my life coach and help me do this and that. And that my doctors were quacks and I was also too fit and productive in retirement, but it's like, if my doctors are quacks, who told you you were going to be your life coach, a new work comp caseworker. Oh, okay. Okay. And so, um, yeah, so they paid for it for four years. And then this new guy was just like, it costs too much money. Literally told me it costs too much money. So you can, you know, like instead of going to talk therapy or neurofeedback, I can take psych meds instead of a chiropractor doing ART, active release therapy, deep tissue work and physical therapy, I can take opiates and muscle relaxers. And, you know, and, you know, yeah. So, I mean, that's a whole other story, but look at our veterans and a lot of, cause I've been a chaplain also for 
uh, rehab centers for first responders. And their stories are often very similar to the veteran stories I hear. You get hurt and you get thrown a bunch of drugs, you know, surgery yep. or drugs. And also what happens with most people, thank God I had different lifestyle habits, but you're off from work, injured or under investigation. I wasn't under investigation, but you're isolated from your brothers and sisters. You feel alone and you self-medicate. So now you're on painkillers and sleep meds and psych meds, and then people are drinking on top of it. It's just bad news. So, And most, and people, for, and most people don't have, first of all, it sounds like you obviously had a little bit of education and you had these habits in place beforehand, but then you also mm -hmm. had a doc, somebody who was giving you some good advice initially. And, um, it, it's just, it kind of makes me sick to my stomach to hear you say that because think about how many people they're, they're not willing to, I mean, you, your sacrifice moving to a whole other state to get the kind of medical care and lifestyle that's going to sustain you and your health. And mm -hmm. not many people are willing to do that or know how to do that. I would say that's true. This woman was an amazing advocate, but mm -hmm. I've been a health nut since sixth grade. I started working yeah. out seventh grade. My dad got me a weight set and asked the high school team coaches if I could work out with them. I started eating strict in seventh grade. You know, I was meditating on and off and journaling in high school, not strict, but on and off and it dabbled with it. But definitely by the time I was an undergrad, there's, you know, I took a deep dive into contemplative practices and my spiritual life. And throughout my police career, I was a strict eater, had a two to three hour quote armor down routine. When I got home from my shift, I took a shower. I lit candles. I didn't own a TV the whole time I was a cop. I, I quit TV in undergrad. So I had a mattress on the floor, a bookshelf, a desk with candles. That's all I had in a little apartment in DC and my apartments in Connecticut. And I would journal you know, meditate, do some contemplative prayer, like a two to three hour every night routine. I was also in something called spiritual direction. And I would always find priests that were also therapists that I, it was kind of like you're in, you have a spiritual companion where you can talk about deep things in life and see, become more aware of where God's showing up in your daily life, including at work for me. Cause there's a lot of things I'm like, how's God involved in this mental illness or this murder? Or, you know, where's, where's, Where's the answers to this? So I already had support systems, mentors, and an extremely healthy lifestyle before the crap hit the fan. Mm -hmm. And guess what? It still was dark and depressing and difficult, which is why I want to encourage better wellness and healthy lifestyle habits for first responders, because at some time in all of our lives, pain, loss, and change is coming. It's inevitable. And even if it's a full 20 or 30 years and you retire, we have too many suicides or depression or people end up having issues or even divorces after they get retired. So we know it's coming. Why wait? And then when somebody's got PTSD and suicidal, then we have some wonderful retreats out there or peer support says, let's help. But that's like saying, I'm going to wait till I'm 300 pounds, smoking two packs a day, eating McDonald's. And drinking four liters of soda pop, whatever you call it, wherever you're from. And then let's get back in shape. Let's do little things to stay in shape throughout our careers rather than wait till we're like completely broken. And then you get to go on a retreat and do meditation, yoga, journaling, small group sharing, nature activities, talk to a therapist. If those things work for some people when they got PTSD and they're suicidal, why aren't we teaching those same things to people throughout careers and putting on retreats, even including taking it a step further with the guns and yoga? I've been trying to put on with someone from San Luis Obispo Sheriff's Department. We want to do retreats where we do tactical shooting, defensive tactics, and then meditation, yoga, journaling, all in the same retreat. So you're doing the warrior alpha male stuff, but you're also doing some stress management, self-care, self-regulation. And also there's different ways. How can you keep finding meaning in the suffering and adversity and the misery you're immersed in as a first responder? So first of all, wow, you know, everything you're saying, I'm just like, you know, nobody can see us, but I'm just inside. I'm just like, I'm nodding. And I'm like, you're, cause you're, <laughs> you're speaking my language. <laughs> so it's, it's always fun for me to meet somebody who, um, you know, we're really like-minded because I think that we're getting better at 
convincing people of what we're saying, but I still think there's a big gap in maybe knowing some of the stuff. Maybe there's some evidence to show that yes, but I still think there's a big gap in knowing it and being able to implement these kind of programs and information into agencies. I don't know what your, your take is on that, but how do you, how do you foresee, or how do you recommend, um, getting these kind of programs to people so that they do this when they start their career? Well, it'd be nice. So here's the things, the budget cuts, right? Defund the police. We were already, when I say we collectively law enforcement, Mm -hmm. even prior to COVID and George Floyd, Agencies were not getting applications because we have demonized the police since the Michael Brown and BLM movement. So police departments were having less applicants, which can lower the quality. Then there's pushes for diversity, which is a great thing. But unfortunately, some departments drop standards to push the diversity, which then lowers the standards for everyone in the academy because they want to push everybody through. Um, And there's not enough time in an academy even to do enough fitness, fighting, and tactical firearms that you're even proficient at that by the time you leave the academy. And they're doing training is not check the box on PowerPoint, but that's a lot of law enforcement training in the academy. That is not training. That's information. Training is applying that information in a practical manner in the real world, especially with physical motor skills, to where you develop them to where they're automatic and then you use them under stress and have to make decisions. And if you're interested in that, read Dustin Solomon, buildingshooters.com. He's doing a lot of research in the brain science of decision-making and use of force and how to train for it. But we don't even train enough of those things. And then how are we gonna add in yoga, meditation, journaling, self-regulation, stress management, life balance? Like I've said, I wish we could extend academies two months but you would need more funding and then check the box with your states or your county or whatever your your things are to be certified. And then the last two months, every day is just a fitness session, a defensive tactic session, tactical shooting session. For two months, every Friday is a scenario day. And in between your PT, DT and shooting, all right, we do PT, then we do a gratitude journal, even if it's 10 minutes. All right, we're going to hit the range. We do two hours of tactical shooting. Then we're going to do some Tai Chi or yoga or Qigong. Take your pick. Who teaches what in your area? Uh, then we do our whatever, I forget, defensive tactics, fitness. And then at the end of the day, we do breath work or yoga or whatever. And I don't care if it's 10 minutes, but if experientially people got a couple months during their training, especially contrasting shooting, meditation, defensive tactics, journaling, physical fitness, where you're pushing it hard, and then breath work to calm ourselves down, self-regulation, to experientially learn that stuff and get in really good shape. Like before special operations units deploy, they train their asses off for an extended period of time. So they're tuned up before they have to go to war to do things to protect this country and allow us to live these beautiful lives we do over here. But special operations guys get more resources than cops or firemen, and college athletes get more resources than cops or firemen. Like, here's bare minimal training as a police officer, and it varies everywhere. Like, there's a lot of good cops in Connecticut, that's where I started, but the training was 20 years behind the training in DC. And I had already trained with Storm Mountain and Rod Ryan and, and all kinds of shooting, pistol, carbine, shotgun, sniper. So when I went to the academy and they're still shooting Weaver, I'm like, what the heck? The driving was horrendous. I was doing defensive tactics with Tony Blauer while I was still in grad school and going to New York City on the weekends with a guy named Vinny Giordano and doing Sambo, Judo, Jiu Jitsu, Muay Thai before MMA was cool and training with Roger Denton in Connecticut. And he was a JKD, Jiu Jitsu, Muay Thai guy. So then I'm like, the DT I got in the Connecticut Academy was like, throw a punch, hold your fist in the air, let somebody grab it and do a takedown. Like, not real, not practical. So the shooting was bad, the driving was bad, the fighting was bad. So my God, when you see a video that looks bad on social media, you don't know if those cops even had the training. They're not bad cops. They just haven't been trained properly. It varies so much. 
So um, I think you had mentioned when when you were working as a police officer that you actually were a wellness coordinator for some mm -hmm. time. Am I am mm -hmm. I remembering that correctly? That's Can correct. Tell us a little bit about what you did when you were the wellness coordinator, the kind of programs that you were in charge of for the either the recruits or the rest of the agency. So I uh, was in charge of cadet and recruit PT and in different in-service training. So my office is in the weight room through donations and through telling, selling t-shirts. And I had uh, supplement companies that were allowed me to sell their product cheaper than the store. So they donated me product. So what, what I couldn't get a budget for, I also had connections and strength conditioning because I was a coach at Georgetown. I put, I built a weight room, like a division one weight room at the police Academy. Wow. And I, I got strongman equipment like logs and kegs. I had speed and agility equipment. I had Muay Thai bags, ground and pound dummies, uppercut bags, and the workouts for cadets, recruits. And there was different times during the day for in-service, which if you're in a huge county, it's only the people that are stationed near there or live near there. But there was also slots for the specialty units. And I trained them like division one athletes, but the conditioning was all combatives for the most part. There was speed and agility conditioning, but it was like, you're going to do ground and pound, 30 seconds, knees or elbows on the ground and pound dummy, elbows and tie kicks on the tie bag, uppercuts. So I tried to make it, quote, sports-specific, tactical athlete before that became cool. I was truly trying to train them sports-specific to tactical situations. I also brought in Polar Heart Rate Company, Trisha Sterling. She's no longer with them. But I had, we would do studies during PT, DT, firearms, and scenario training, where we would record people's uh, heart rates to show them physiologically what's happening when they're under physical exertion or mental stress or unknown during scenarios. And then we did studies where we showed the full-time SWAT team going through the exact same full day of scenarios as different levels of patrol. Two years patrol from a slow station, two years patrol from a fast station, somebody that's a combat vet that's got five years on patrol and look at how fast they completed the scenario, what mistakes they made, what did they do right, and what was their heart rate. And for example, the full-time SWAT team guys were pretty flat heart rate, spike during something, comes right back down, pretty flat. They'd, they would complete the scenarios with no errors real quick and good tactics. And when I went to some people on command staff, and I was a SWAT guy, right? I was out on injury, but I was a SWAT guy. I'm like, SWAT guys aren't better. You know, SWAT guys get to train all the time. They get the, you know, the full-time guys are in the gym every day. They're shooting all the time. They're doing scenarios all the time. And they're hitting houses doing warrants all the time. That's why they're good. I mean, granted, yeah. that, I'm just saying, but the, the patrol people are showing up to the mall or the synagogue shooting or the church shooting or whatever. And they don't have enough training. And my agency trained a lot compared to others. And I'm like, and, and still people were not prepared in my opinion. And so I tried to use uh, the, the heart rate studies to show that we needed more training. And they did let me put on more scenario training. And I brought in the SWAT and what was called the jump out, the tactical narcotics vice squad as my instructors versus no offense. There's some police academies where the instructor worked the day shift in a slow district, and now they've been at the academy for 10 years. And so somebody who's going through a scenario doesn't respect their opinion. But when you have the full-time SWAT guys and the jump out guys that are operational, that are giving you instruction, like there's, you're even more motivated and encouraged. Um, so I did that. I had a nutrition program. If you worked out with me during all those time slots and for the cadets and recruits, you got free protein and carb shakes, whatever I had. Um, and I also implemented breath work with stress erasers. It was an early heart rate variability device that now everybody can do on their phone. So I taught breath work. I gave out these devices for people I knew that would practice at home. And one day a bomb squad guy came in, for example, and said, Matt, I got called out last night and I didn't realize to the end of the call that I, the whole time I was running code, I was doing my breathing and everything flew by and was so smooth and I wasn't jacked up and I felt so good at the end of the call. And it was because he was training breath work all the time, all the time. So it kicked in. 
Uh, progressive muscle relaxation is teaching people like you flex really hard, each different muscle group, relax. I would turn out the lights, lay them down on the mats after a workout and put them through breath work, progressive muscle relaxation, and then imagery and visualization, pretending I was dispatch, giving them calls to visualize using all five senses. Visualization is not just imagery. You want to think about the taste, the smell, the sound. Um, so as a wellness coordinator, that's what I tried to do. Improve strength conditioning in a practical, athletic manner, not just bury people with distance running or whatever you're good at. You know, that happens in police academies. If somebody's a CrossFitter, they're going to show off. Not They're not always, but I've had instructors that just want to crush everybody because they're good at CrossFit. If they're a marathon runner, they're going to crush everybody with a run. And unless you're a canine in a rural area, nobody's running five miles. So what are we running five miles for? Get in the car or call the chopper, you know? So I tried to make strength conditioning and the defensive tactics and more scenario training, nutrition, and some self-regulation with the breath work. And you can say sport or performance psychology with the imagery and progressive muscle relaxation stuff. So that's what I tried to do and also implement during in-service days when they went to the range, I started collecting data on different physical fitness standards or, you know, vertical jump, 300 yard shuttle. And I was going to try to get fitness standards or perhaps an incentive for people that met certain fitness standards, because creating fitness standards is a whole other monkey wrench. And, you know, people wonder why the military, you can be in the military band and you're never going to deploy you still PT every day and got to pass the Army's PT test. A cop deploys for 30 years every day, but there's no fitness standard. Talk to Jay Smith of FitForce. There's a lot of legal concerns and uh, blowback from unions why that's hard. But I also was trying to create standards to where maybe we could incentivize it. We can't force people to do these PT tests, but if you do it, maybe you get a $500 check or something. Um, so are some of these things, obviously the recruits have no choice. They've got to, when they're in the academy, they have to do what they're told. But the, the other things that you're mentioning for the people, the rest of the agency, is this something that was voluntary or was this something that was mandatory for them to do? Because it sounds like, gosh, it was really innovative back. You know, I know people are doing more and more, but to be able to have that evidence to show your command staff, mm -hmm. Hey, look at why we need to do more of this. Yeah, um, you know, you, you can't get any better evidence than that, in my opinion, by showing them. So when you did put on that training, was it was was it something that they had to go to or? So I have or maybe I, I don't know the evaluations for that, for the one thing we called train to win, where I brought in SWAT and jump and they were in the instructors full day of defensive tactics, tactical shooting and scenarios. It was bust your balls very hard, right, because you're fighting. Like it's hands-on, there's force-on-force with simunition. Everybody that went through it loved it and said, this should be mandatory, including supervisors that went through it. And I even had a major, a major at the time go through it. She's now the, you know, had retired and she's a chief of another DC area, Northern Virginia department. And she's was, and probably still is super badass. And they all pushed for it to be mandatory, but it was voluntary because it was too hard. And there, mm. there's going to be people are like, that's too hard. And logistically, it is hard to put, no matter how big your department is, and now that we're short-staffed everywhere, hey, you're going to pull people and put everybody through a one or a two-day, all this defensive tactics, shooting, and scenario training. But I, I say, why aren't we looking at these videos and saying the agency, the city, or the county is failing to train those officers? Like, the cops that are fit and can fight and shoot, they're going to make less errors under pressure, which is going to be less of these ugly incidents where there's millions of dollars of payout. It's also going to be less medical retirements for people either getting hurt or getting PTSD. If you're fit and can fight and shoot, you can de-escalate better. You can communicate better. You have a better command presence and you make better decisions under stress. There's videos where there's justified shootings, but the officer had to shoot them because they either couldn't fight or the Quite frankly, they were obese and out of shape and got knocked down and were getting their head smashed off the pavement where it wouldn't have happened to somebody that's, you know, fit or doing some martial arts or training more. So part of this is agencies, I think, failing to train, but they don't have the time or the budget, as we spoke about. But some of this is also when you're a cop, when you decide to go into this profession, 
This is your life insurance policy, whether it's your mom and dad you care about, your husband or your wife or your children, or your partners on your squad or your team. You better be doing a little, at least fitness, and maybe try to go to a defensive tactics seminar once a year. And, you know, I say at least a two or three day tactical shooting class once a year. If your agency doesn't host it, find out who the ex Green Beret, Ranger, Navy SEAL, Delta guy is in your region that puts on a combat shooting course and go to it and get some shooting and moving, shooting at moving targets, shooting from a vehicle, shooting in or around a vehicle and shooting from different positions, not just punching holes on paper and broad daylight with no stress. That's not mm -hmm. training. That's marksmanship and qualification. Well, and what I love about what you're saying, and people will have to look you up on your website to see what you look like, okay? <laughs> because to look <laughs> at you and to hear you talk about things like yoga, meditation, breath work, and visualization and journaling, you don't typically, no, you don't <laughs> typically see somebody like you who's talking about that stuff. Now, people expect it from me, right? I yeah. talk about that <laughs> stuff all the time. And I'm a retired cop, but I don't look like you. So <laughs> I just I just want to point out how important and significant that is because you have, you know, I don't really hear as much about this, the importance of this holistic framework, how mm -hmm. important and imperative it really is because you just hit the nail on the head, in my opinion, when you said all of these things are related to other things. So if you take care of yourself, you're physically fit, your physiology, your biology is intact, you know mm -hmm. how to self-regulate, you're gonna perform better, your mindset's gonna be impacted. So mm -hmm. I think it's really hard for people to get that because I still think people compartmentalize all of those things, nutrition, fitness, mental health. Mm -hmm. I don't think they understand, at least in my experience, how interconnected they really are. Oh, like even just gut health quickly. Your oh, gut health yeah. ties into your mood. It ties into your immunity. It ties into your cognitive function and your overall inflammation in your body. So if mm -hmm. you're eating like crap, like you're a fat, you could be causing depression and you could be jacking up your sleep, you know, and you're definitely compromising your immune system. So there's just eating alone. But yeah, each of these things, exercise, meditation, they, everything is integrated and synergistic. And the more we do of the healthy things, the healthier we're going to be mind, body, and spirit for real. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, like and people should know that there's people out there. I wish there was more of them, but there are like the ex Navy SEALs and green berets that now teach yoga and meditation. It's not as common, but there's other alpha males out there that do these things. And I wish we would get over the stigma of you can't be, and you know, I did like, for instance, I did thing with NFL guys. I did breath work and stretching, which is basically yoga, but I didn't tell them it was yoga because the stigma of the word. I also was just a quote strength coach for NFL combine guys. We didn't tell them all this other stuff I was doing was quote sports psych because anytime you use the word psychology, there's a stigma, even sports psychology, but definitely clinical psychology. So I wish we would work on destigmatizing and normalizing self-care mm -hmm. and get out there that self-care is not selfish. And just to do a quick analogy, cops and firemen, they have their lifted trucks or their sweet muscle cars or their fancy European whatever cars that I know nothing about because I'm a truck guy. But um, <laughs> they're mint, they're waxed, they're good to go. But as far as self-care of their own bodies, cops will they'll run their own engine and mind until the check engine light comes on. And then they'll put a piece of black electrical tape over the check engine light and mash the gas pedal even harder until smoke's coming out of the exhaust. There's steel belts showing on the tires and the brakes are squeaking and the rotors are warped. That's yeah, how I love cops that analogy. Are. Yeah. <laughs> That's how cops are with their own self care, but they would never do that to their vehicle. Why are we not rotating our tires, changing our tires before the steel belts are showing, changing the brakes before the brakes are squeaking, checking the fluids every once in a while, changing the wiper blades? I mean, self-care is not selfish. If your well goes dry, you can't give anybody else a drink of water. And I know we're out there serving and people do a great job of doing it, but how better would you be if you're taking better care of yourself? Because I don't want cops to die at 57 or 10 to 22 years shorter than any other profession and higher rates of cancer and 
like there's a laundry list of diseases that cops have at a higher rate than other people. And it's because we're not taking care of ourselves and we're not sleeping and we have bad diets and we're dealing with cortisol and adrenaline dumps all the time that we have to work hard at counteracting. Yeah. And again, I, I couldn't agree more with everything that you're saying. And I, I really like the fact that you're highlighting this and bringing attention to it. And even with what you're doing now, which is what I want to ask you about next, because mm -hmm. I really want to make sure people understand the significance of what you're saying and how you're working now to share that information to s still support law enforcement, even after being retired and everything that you do is on a voluntary basis in the Los Angeles area. Is that, is that right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then there's, I also do peer support for nonprofits. And then also I have friends that are police psychologists or lawyers that represent first responders. So I get referrals from like all over the place. So I do a mm -hmm. lot of phone and email peer support, but in the LA area, I'm a volunteer chaplain for multiple agencies, primarily police and peer support depending on what agency and some people define peer support and chaplaincy differently. Myself, I think chaplains and peer support are doing very similar things. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that peer support chaplains and mental health professionals should all be on the same team and working to help the street cops. You know, so there's a couple of, a lot of chaplains are unknown. Like I didn't know my chaplains really, they didn't ride along. They showed up to the station maybe every once in a while. If I tried to call them out after a murder and I, the family wanted a chaplain or I wanted a chaplain that could speak Spanish to an Hispanic family, like they're never available sometimes, right? Or they show up just to pray at events or they show up to the station to have breakfast with the captain or they want to meet the chief. Like, or they just want to do things every once in a while in the community. So I think there is a difference. Are you a chaplain for the community or a chaplain for the cops? And if you're a chaplain for the cops, which I think we should have, and they should be working with peer support and the mental health professionals. The only way you're going to be of any use, well, one, you have to be culturally competent. So how do you become culturally competent? I think we should recruit more retired first responders and veterans to be chaplains, whether they're ordained clergy or not. If they have a faith life and experience in ministry, they could find meaning and purpose by giving back and also relate really well to the cops and firemen out there if they are a former cop, fireman, or veteran. But you need to ride along and do station visits and attend and observe training or do the training if they let you. I mean, I'm unique because I'm like still in shape and can still get after it. And depending on agency, like they let me do the firearms training. They let me do EVOC and PIT um, and they let me do DT or observe. And that helps build relationships. Dude, the chaplain's pretty good with the gun. And wow, the chaplain's pitting somebody. Like he's not here just to preach to us because being a chaplain, people don't know it's a ministry of presence and you're supposed to meet people where they are, whether they're religious or not. It's not about preaching or evangelizing. You're not there to promote nor deter the pursuit of religion. You're there to be a presence and a support and an encourager and where they can unload their stuff if they trust you or get them resources if they need it. If that's rehab, is that a mental health professional? So my philosophy is ride once a week with whatever agency you're with and do station visits and try to get them goodies or whatever. Like I try to get coffee, coffee beans. I try to get protein shakes. I try to get good books on mental health or physical fitness or first responder stuff. I reach out to authors and things like that. So you got to put in the time developing relationships and rapport, and then they will if they're not going to share the little things with you over time, they're not going to share the big things. So if you deploy peer support chaplains and mental health professionals to an officer involved shooting and the people that show up, depending on the agency, if they don't, they don't have a relationship and they've never met that chaplain or psychologist or peer support person, you're not talking to them. It's ridiculous. You check the box. We sent the cavalry of help, but nobody knows them. So you have to develop relationships prior to a critical incident. And my philosophy is wellness and peer support and mental health should be proactive, not reactive. So let's help them develop these healthy lifestyle things ahead of time. I have no budget. If I win the lotto, I'm building a retreat center to do the jujitsu and shooting and yoga and meditation and journaling. Um, but what I try to do one-on-one -on -one is why I'm developing relationships with officers. If they do trust me, maybe we do talk about nutrition or meditation or spirituality or a variety of these things. And over the time of 
a couple years, there's guys and gals that do implement things. And there may be things that I talk to somebody about that they share with their trainee. Like then people come to me and be like, hey, Matt, after the suicide call, I just wanted to let you know that and tell them, instead of telling my trainee to suck it up, I said, hey, man, are you good with that hanging yesterday? That was gnarly. Kind of rattled me. Like they'll admit, hey, I'm a human. That was ugly. And just so you know, if it bothered you, it's okay. And if you want to talk to me, meaning the train, the FTO, talk to me. You want to talk to the chaplain or see a therapist, totally normal. So there's things, you, it's like a ripple effect if we start normalizing these things. And the more people on a squad or in a station that are doing fitness, it can catch on. Same with let's try keto, carnivore, paleo, vegetarian. The more people try different diets, they start improving that. And I think the same would be as if there's been people that said, Matt, let, why don't we bring yoga to this police station? I'm like, ah, I, I don't have a budget for it. And I'm not a yoga instructor. I wish I wish I was. And then maybe I could put on some freebie yoga things. But just through individual and small group relationships, I, at least for me, I can give access to my knowledge and experiences and then refer people. Because I do, at least in LA, I might have places where I know they can get good martial arts instruction or strength conditioning or different prayer groups or different police psychologists that are culturally competent and they can see them if they don't want to use their EAP or their insurance or their department site to try to give them different resources because I am not the guru. I'm, I'm the guy that has a ton of experience in a lot of areas so I can share my experiences and my education with you. And then if you want to dive deep, I'm going to point you to other mentors or experts or resources, whether that's books or courses or things like that. I don't know if I made sense. I was speaking fast, but I wish we could find ways to implement proactive teaching people how to take better care of their mind, their thought life, their heart, their feelings, their emotion, and their bodies. And when I say take care of your body, that means you do need to do some things for performance, which could be the lifting or the running or the martial arts, but then you have to do things to take care of recovery of your body. And that includes sleep and nutrition, stress management, self-regulation, could be getting a massage, acupuncture, float tank, sauna. There's a lot of components to our physical health, not just grind, not just power lift, Olympic lift, bodybuild, train for a triathlon. Well, first of all, you have a lot to say. So I just like like to sit back and, and hear everything that, <laughs> that you're saying. And and it's really it's amazing because it's obvious how like how passionate and, and charged up you get talking about this because it's important to you and very selfless of you to do this on a voluntary basis. And you're so invested because you're right. Anybody who's going to do this kind of work, whether it be peer support, chaplaincy, working with troops, getting them to trust you, there has to be that, that relationship and that trust. And you're only going to get that if you're either part of that organization for a while, or you're doing the things that you're doing. So kudos to you for making that. I mean, some people would call it a sacrifice because I, I don't know that that many people would be willing to do everything that you're doing to help first responders. Mm. Well, thank you. And it's humbling. And it kind of chokes me up hearing you say that because another one of my life philosophies has always been since my early 20s, we all have been given life experiences that have taught us mm -hmm. lessons and have gifts and talents. And if we can find where they meet a need in the world that we're passionate about, I think that's where we're called to be. And we're going to find a lot of meaning and I, my police career is like the NFL, not for long for a lot of people, <laughs> right? So I still miss it. I still identify with it. And I still love cops and firemen and veterans and think they are some of the greatest people on the face of this planet and in this country, and they're not getting the resources they need. So it is humbling and very meaningful for me to do this. It gives my life a lot of meaning and sure. in a medical retirement to do this. And I just love these folks and I wish I could win the lotto so I could do more for them. <laughs> well, we're talking about money. You, you're talking about winning the lotto. So if anybody is listening and they're interested in supporting this mission, can you talk a little bit about your website and how people can support the things that you're doing? Sure. Um, somebody bought me a website because I was awesome. doing a podcast and people are like, couldn't even find me because I don't have a presence. 
So somebody bought me the website, tacticalchaplain.com. And on there, there's links on how to donate, or if you have a company that has products and services, or if you have a place that holds retreats or outdoor activities, like there's a whole page where I'm like, man, I'll take anything. Like I took guys on a fishing trip to Missouri and a ministry covered that a fishing hey, trip. That's, that's only like right around the corner from Kansas. Oh, nice. <laughs> so yeah. So tacticalchaplain.com. I'm part of a nonprofit ministry, Global Associates, globalassociates.org. Uh, the link to that's on tacticalchaplain.com, but you can also find me globalassociates.org under affiliates, and you can make uh, donations that are tax deductible. They'll send you all the paperwork during tax season. Um, I'm, I'm on Instagram at Thin Blue Line Spirituality. I'm not a huge fan of social media, but cops said you have to do it. But so I'm there. But yeah, if you go to tacticalchaplain.com, or globalassociates.org, affiliates, look me up. I'm on LinkedIn, Matt Damiancic. Um, The Tactical Chaplain page and the Global Associates, my specific ministry page, explains how you can help. Okay, great. Yes, and I'll make sure that all of those things that you just mentioned get put in the show notes so people can go directly there. Awesome. And uh, anything... Is there anything else? I mean, you covered a lot and I really appreciate you sharing all of those things that you're doing now and that you've done and, and just how it's helped you in your recovery process from your mm-hmm. injuries. Uh, Cause I think it's really important for people to hear that, especially anybody who might be struggling with specifically some sort of a physical injury mm-hmm. and the importance of the type of habits that you have and the links that you, that you went to, to make sure that you did what you knew was right, which was not to, get laid up and just continue to take prescription medications. Like there is another way to Mm -hmm. healing and a better way, in my opinion, for sure. Um, But is there anything else that you want anybody to know that you haven't said throughout the last hour or so? I can't think um, there's, uh, there's a couple of things I always say. And I do want to mention that we were putting on retreats, peer support retreats. And when I say Mm -hmm. we, uh, myself and like police psychologists, depth psychologists, a theology professor, we were putting on proactive retreats, but COVID shut it down. And we were trying to create another nonprofit to where cops and firemen could do two to four day retreats with us, where we would teach them these things experientially out in nature, get a chance to unplug. I hope we can do that in the future. And there's some stuff on my website about that. Now, some of the things I always want to say are first, self-care is not selfish. If your well goes dry, you can't give anybody else a drink of water. Um, pain that is not transformed is transmitted. If you don't heal what hurt you, you will bleed on people that did not cut you. So this means you got to work on things in your life, whether it goes back to childhood or it's a bad call that upsets you. What are you going to do to process and learn a lesson from that rather than pass it on to your family, friends, or maybe even the next call? Um, something else that's a big problem with men, especially first responders in general, because all first responders get into this control freak, alpha male stuff, Um, work on your own stuff first. Like you can attend courses and read books on whatever self-care or leadership. If you don't apply this stuff to your own life first and model it, then it's not, you, you didn't learn it, right? So even before you go around and tell people about wellness or mental, emotional, spiritual health, work on your own stuff first, because you're uh-huh. not going to have credibility if you don't. I, and it's I a was life- just going to say, yeah, cops can see through bullshit. So if you're saying it, but you're not, you know, you're not embodying it, you're not living it, then the, the message is not going to get transmitted correctly yeah. <laughs> or accepted, I should say. Yeah. And I just, I don't know, because you know what? Unfortunately, a lot of us do learn our lessons in these come to Jesus moments through severe pain. And some of the greatest uh, growth periods in my life are the post-traumatic growth. from the severe pain and suffering. But just know that pain, change, and loss is coming to all of us at some time, even if you get to do your 30-year career. And if you do not have a support system in place, different communities like in your life, if you don't have different mentors and elders and lifestyle habits to sustain you now, it's going to be that much harder to do these things either when you get retired or you get injured or you get in a shooting or see something that's horrendous at work. 
So I just, I don't know how to change that with cops because there you could put on free training. And even out here, I volunteered with the DEA when I first moved here and we would get UFC fighters and I was still contact connected to the supplement companies. It would be a free day of jujitsu with a UFC guy. And I'd give you four jugs of protein to take home. That's like $200 worth. And it was the same 20 cops every month. Like, and we told, there's the same 20 cops and federal agents that knew about it, but you can't even give away free training sometime to cops, but mm -hmm. man, this is our life insurance. There's, you got to have some fitness level. You got to be able to fight a little bit and you got to be able to do some tactical shooting and you probably don't get enough training from your agency. And on the flip, you got to know how to take care of yourself, sleep and nutrition, stress management, self-regulation. And so it sounds like they should listen to your podcast, get to your website or hire you to come out and teach them yoga and mindfulness and things like that. Well, I get to do that. I, I mean, I work as a wellness coordinator at um, a sheriff's office from the same town that I retired in. And actually, I was going to mention to you, so it's almost like you need to come here and do some of your things. And then I need to go there and teach some yoga and meditation because, uh, but I, but, but in all seriousness, I can, after we're done, I can talk to you a little bit more about if you're serious about needing to find a yoga teacher, um, through yoga for first responders, I mm -hmm. bet you there are plenty of people that are qualified that, that can fill that void to, to be able to teach yoga if your people are interested. Awesome. Uh, and that's yeah. awesome that you get to do that and kudos for your agency. I wish mm -hmm. every agency did that. And I would like to mention, like, as far as peer support being more proactive and incorporating wellness, I have this shirt on Live Like Lexi. Lexi Harris was a Seattle officer that got killed this year, unfortunately. But they have, a, they even as bad as Seattle is, they had a full-time peer support and wellness unit with like a lieutenant, two sergeants, and at least three officers full-time devoted. And they included nutrition and teaching about sleep and defensive tactics and fitness. Mm -hmm. Like Lexi was like a badass cop with a heart of gold, but like competed in jujitsu and was jacked and lifted weights and took additional firearms training. And they went out and were proactively doing that with their agency. Um, it's a shame of what's going on there. But I hope that if the tide turns and agencies get funded, that they have more wellness coordinators and peer support and wellness units and they do proactive teaching in these different areas, which also destigmatizes speaking to you. Because if you're doing wellness and not just peer support shows up after a critical incident, that destigmatizes talking to peer support. Because otherwise, if you're talking to peer support or the chaplain or the psychologist, oh, dude, that person's got PTSD or they're an alcoholic or they're suicidal, that stigmatizes it too. If the only things you're doing, our reactive Mitchell model debrief after something really bad. Yeah. And there, that's, that's just one small piece of what needs to be implemented. I, I couldn't agree more about the proactive and pre preventative piece. And I love that you and whoever else you do this with are doing those retreats that mm -hmm. aren't because people are struggling. It's to teach them those things. Because I think often, you know, we try to do trainings at your agency, we do it at our agency. And then I know of other places, I think it's hard sometimes, I think to teach people certain things and to really instill it. And I love the fact that you're trying to do that for just a couple, a couple of days, get them out of their regular environment and kind mm -hmm. of submerge them so that they can really, you know, like you said, not just get information, but practice it and body it experientially. And obviously it's on them to be able to continue it when they do go back to their, to their homes and their jobs. But I, I just think that's really unique. I haven't heard of proactive retreats teaching those kinds of things. I, I don't know if there are, there are great mm -hmm. ones. Like, and for people out there that are suffering, I would say, look up Boulder Crest. Look up Save a Warrior. Look up the Sparta Project. Look up Warrior's Ascent, which is somewhere near you. Warrior's Ascent is in your area. Yeah, we have Those Warrior's all... Ascent and the Battle Within and WCPR, West Coast Post-Trauma Retreat. Yep. We do it actually here in Kansas, too. Oh, That's good. actually the, the sweatshirt I'm wearing because I, I volunteer with that. Nice. So we do have some really great offerings here, but all of those things are geared towards the things that we were just discussing. Mm -hmm. Nothing that I'm aware of is that, that proactive piece where you're coming just to learn these things. Mm -hmm. So, well, we know, and I'm going on and on. There's an analogy I use, like there's a story that 
this guy is fishing, hanging out by a stream, and somebody is drowning, and they're coming down the stream drowning. So he rips his clothes off, dives in, and saves them. The crowd's like, wow, this fisherman's like a stud. Well, as he's drying off, somebody else comes down the stream drowning. He dives in, saves that person. Wow, he saved two people. He puts his clothes back on. He's drying off. Here comes a third person, and he just walks upstream. And everybody's like, why are you walking upstream? Aren't you going to save this person? He's like, I'm going upstream to find out why in the hell people that don't know how to swim are entering these rough waters. Oh, that's funny. So let's look at the statistics of disease and mental health and suicide with cops and firefighters Mm -hmm. and veterans. We know they're going to be in rough waters. Why are Mm -hmm. we not, first of all, warning them rough waters ahead in these areas and then giving them swimming lessons? Mm Mm-hmm. At this point, we wait till they're drowned and then offer the the life vest or throw out the little ring, you know. Yeah, I just love your analogies, Matt. They're they're I think they're on point. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, I really appreciate your time. And again, I'm gonna make sure everybody knows where to find you. The tactical chaplain, the uh, tactical chaplain. Um, and I'm not even gonna try to say your last name again. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> Thank, Thank you so you. much for having me. Yes, thank you for for being here. I hope you enjoyed the episode with Matt. If you find value, I please encourage you to share it, give us a review, and if you'd like to be notified of future episodes, you can subscribe on our Podbean website or email us at wendy at bluelineyoga.com. I'd love to hear from you with questions, suggestions for future guests, or topics that you'd like to hear about. And if you want to learn all of the ways to get a hold of Matt, Go to tacticalchaplain.com. That's his website. You can find him on Instagram at at thinbluelinespirituality or on LinkedIn under Matt Demiancic.